Morning, everybody. Just a couple of things before we get started. Um, I'm sorry that I haven't been able to be with you more often lately, uh, but the last couple of months I just haven't been very well. And it's just been one thing after another. And uh, so not long after Sal died, I, I ended up with this virus that meant I just couldn't hear. I had to get Jenny to text me uh, in, in the same room. I just couldn't hear. Uh, and, and that took a fair while to clear up. My, both my ears were just thoroughly blocked. Uh, and then not long after that, I had what my, my cluster headache condition returned. I've been getting those since I was 20. Um, and I haven't had one for two and a half years. And so uh, the pattern since I've been 20 is that I get a, a, a cluster headache patch every, every year. And cluster headaches are different from headaches, normal headaches, because uh, there's a particular intensity about them and there's a particular regularity about them. So I might come every year. And when, I, when I'm in a cluster, I get repeated headache bouts for a period of two, three, sometimes four weeks. And to this cluster, they were coming every second day, and I was getting four of them in a row. And I'd get half an hour of relief, and then I'd get another one. And they just wear you out. Um, they're, they're extremely intense, and um, they really knock you around. Then I got out of that, and I got COVID. So... Uh, uh, and I thought I was over that, and then I had a bad week because I think I had a bit of a relapse or something. Anyway, here we are. So, now, I'll tell you about cluster. Just one other thing, because sometimes they worry people. I've, I've had my brain looked at. It's OK. There's, there's no dangerous markings. But uh, I've had people really worried. I have prayed many times that God would take it from me. Uh, that hasn't happened, so I now regard it as my thorn in the flesh. Uh, Paul prayed three times for his thorn to be taken. God said no. My strength is made manifest in your weakness. So I think it's just my share of the fall. I have prayed about it, and, and I, I welcome any prayers, but the fact is that I'm stuck. it seems like I'm stuck with it. Um, and I've tried everything that I've been told. I've seen six neurologists. Um, and um, So you don't need to ask me about them now, right, because I'll be OK until next year. <laughs> right? it, it, it's very unlikely that they'll come back coming back again uh, until next year. That's just how they go. Anyway, they're a nuisance, and I wish I didn't have them. But, uh, and they come on so quickly. I've been just about to preach. And I was queued up to buy the Saturday morning paper at the newsagent one day. and at the, I was at the end of the queue, and by the time I got to the counter, I had one full-blown. They just come out of nowhere. So there you go. But let's, uh, let's think... Oh, I should just say about Jenny, too. Uh, her, her surgery went well. And she's well into her recovery, but she is going to need to have a pretty quiet life for a little while. So uh, uh, we've just had a few things on. But let's pray, and then we'll come to God's word together. Uh, loving Heavenly Father, we, we thank you again for your word, and we pray that you would help us to be hearers and doers of your word. We pray that you would help us to bear your word and to keep your word. And at the end of all things, we ask, Lord God, that you would keep us by uh, in the strength of Jesus so that we would be found to have been... Uh, people who keep your word. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're thinking about the Church of Philadelphia. So would you please turn to Revelation chapter 3. Uh, we've been working our way through these early chapters of Revelation. We're going to finish next week uh, and then we'll come back to Revelation again next year, God willing. But these earliest chapters of the book of Revelation are a series of letters from Jesus to seven churches in that part of the world that the, uh, the ancients knew as Asia Minor. Uh, we would call it Turkey today. Uh, so seven churches, there were more, but these seven have been selected by Jesus to receive a letter uh, from him through his servant John. 
Um, and so today we're thinking about the letter to the church in Philadelphia. So we read uh, Revelation 3, starting at verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we could call this message uh, Jesus' letter to a low-powered church. Um, Why would a church think it was low in power? Have you ever thought that about Mafra? A church might think it's low in power because it might feel small. Maybe by comparison to another church. Because if you pay any attention to all the way things are going in the world, there's a lot of really big churches. And a lot of them now have a global reach through the internet. So if you want to, you could go home today and watch a powerful preacher preach a powerful word to 10,000 people. And you might, at the end of that, think, gee, I wish I went to a church like that. I'd feel much closer to God if I went to a church like that. Why has God left me in Mafra? You might think that. I've been to conferences where the only people who get to speak, they're always introduced, this is Pastor such and such, his church is 5,000. This is Pastor, his church is 10,000. I had a lecturer at college once, in fact Peter Adam, uh, those of you who were on the camp will remember Peter Adam. If you don't remember Peter Adam, come to the camp next year because Peter will be back. But when he's asked how many people go to his church, he says 37. It's just a joke. Because you see, he says, anybody who has a church of 36 would go, ooh, 37, he's special. But anyone with a church of 38 would go, what have we got to learn from him? So he just plucks a number out of the air, right? The most important thing is to be known by God. Now, I've been to those conferences where you have these mega church pastors preach. I started my teaching career out in Nil. And we used to go to church in Japarit. If there was a revival in Japarit and every living soul in Japarit came to faith, you could not have a church of more than 500. That would be a mega church in Japarit. Right. Do you think God cares? God loves numbers because he wants everyone to come to the knowledge of Christ. So there will be big churches, there will be small churches, but God wants faithful churches. 
And you can be a small church and a faithful church, and I trust we will be. But why else might a church think it's low-powered? Well, it might regard itself as inconsequential in its culture. It might think that the, the impressiveness of the culture in which it, by which it's surrounded make it feel like it has almost no influence. And perhaps you think that way, not just about MAFRA, but about churches across Australia. And this past week, look, it has been an interesting week. My son texted us on, Sunday, on Tuesday morning and said, have you seen this? And he had a photo of the Herald Sun. And there's the article saying that the CEO of Essendon Footy Club's been given the flick uh, because he goes to a church that teaches things that are outside of club values, apparently. And then I saw the interview that uh, Guy Mason, the lead pastor of City on a Hill, gave on the Sunrise program, and I thought it was a fairly hostile interview. Now, normally those breakfast programs are pretty light and breezy, and the, 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 you know, the interviewers go easy on their customers, but I thought this one was hostile. And I thought, how would I have gone in the lights of the TV studio and, and, and have this fellow... It felt like he was under attack. And you think to yourself, he hasn't really got a right of reply because any time he tried to say something, he was interrupted. And then you get the Premier weighing in. And who, who gets to ask him a question? Right? And you might think, well, gee, if a Christian can lose their job for going to church, you might think, where's our power? And you might be feeling a bit discouraged. I've spoken to people who have found this week discouraging. Because it's a, if you can lose your job because you go to church... Andrew Thorburn didn't preach those sermons. He may not even have been in church the Sunday they were preached. And yet he lost his job. Wow. Jesus is speaking to a low-powered church. And he tells them, I know. When Jesus says he knows... Don't underestimate that. Because whatever it is that you're going through, Jesus feels it with you. Because Jesus is the perfect human. And Jesus has not ceased to be human since he went to heaven. So when he says to the church in Philadelphia, I know, what he means is I identify and I feel your pain and suffering too. Now, before we get to the passage... What's the biggest question you'll never need to find an answer to? The biggest question you'll ever need to find an answer to, I think, is, is Jesus Lord? Is Jesus Lord? That's the question that will be asked on Judgment Day. It's the question, that the, the answer to which will determine your eternal destiny. What does it mean to say Jesus is Lord? It means he's king. Actually, it means he's God. But a king has a kingdom. And in that kingdom, a good king will make sure that his law is obeyed. So what does it mean to say that Jesus is my Lord? It means, Jesus, you are my king, and I will do joyfully those things you tell me to do. How do I know what Jesus wants me to do? Well, it's in his word. Go back to Matthew chapter 7. Because here we find the living proof of these things. But in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is looking ahead to the great day. Matthew 7 at at verse 21. And he says, 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The most important question that you need to determine an answer to before you meet Jesus is, is he your Lord? Jesus knows whether it's true or not because he's able to say here that not everyone who says it actually means it. So how do we know we mean it? When we cheerfully do God's will. And God's will is contained in God's word. But the most horrifying sentence anyone will ever hear is, I never knew you. Now all this sits in the background to the passage that we're reading today from Revelation. So go back to Revelation, but keep that in mind. You see, the thing is, Jesus will be the one who determines entry to the eternal kingdom of God. That's what it means to say that Jesus has the keys. He's identified here as the one who has the keys. It's Jesus. Have you ever, ever seen those cartoons or heard the jokes about Peter being at the pearly gates? Have you ever seen those? Every now and again you see them. There's Peter at the, the pearly gates and Donald Trump or someone's died and they're going there and Peter... It's not Peter. It's Jesus. Jesus works out who belongs in God's kingdom. And we need to bear that in mind. Right, so verse 7, Revelation 3. Uh, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Now, Philadelphia, a little bit of background. Philadelphia combines two Greek words, which means love of a brother. And so the, uh, Philadelphia, the city, it was the youngest of the seven cities that have been written to here. And it was under the rule of the king of Pergamum. And the king of Pergamum had such a special affection for his brother, and everybody knew it, that when he built this new city, he named it Philadelphia, love of a brother. Right? So that's why it's called that. That's why the city in America is called Philadelphia. They call it the city of brotherly love. But it was founded for a special purpose. It was not founded to be a military stronghold. It was founded to be on the gateway of a good way to get Greek culture from here to there. Because the Greek, the, the, the Greek culture had spread through its language and through its customs throughout the whole of what was then the known world. And that's why we can actually be thankful for that because that's why the Bible was written in Greek and it was understood because the Greek language had penetrated everywhere. And so Philadelphia was set up to be a gateway, to be an open door for Greek culture to penetrate the rest of Asia Minor. It was situated on a volcanic plain and because of the nature of the geology it was particularly subject to earthquakes. And in AD 17, earlier in the century that John was writing, there'd been such a bad earthquake that large sections of Philadelphia had just been destroyed. But for many years after, there were violent aftershocks that had quite a damaging effect. For a fair period of time, after the earthquake and with those aftershocks, lots of people from Philadelphia felt so unsafe about living there that they camped outside the city so that they wouldn't be whacked on the head by falling bricks. And they thought anybody who lived in the city was mad. And for a long time after it lived in the memory of Philadelphians, this is a place where everything shakes. 
This is a place where you never know when the big one's going to come. That's Philadelphia. So, Jesus. There's a pro forma always in these letters. And so we get the greeting to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. And then we follow that up with a title of the risen Christ. Now, usually these titles owe something to the description that we read in chapter 1. The letter to the Philadelphians hints at the description of Jesus in chapter 1, but it doesn't quote it. So have a look at it there in verse 7. The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. Now they're not actually words that are taken directly from chapter 1, but in chapter 1 we are told that Jesus is the faithful and true witness, And we're also told in chapter 1, verse 18, that he has the keys of death and Hades. So here we find that he has the key of David. Previously, we've been told he has the key of death and Hades. In other words, Jesus is identifying himself as the one who has power over life and death. But here he's identified as the one who holds the key of David. And that's why I asked Peter to read Isaiah 22 before. Uh, because it supplies the background, it supplies the image that that Jesus is drawing on here as he speaks to the the Philadelphians. Now, we need to think about this. Who was David? Whenever you come up with an image or um, a symbol in the book of Revelation, almost always you'll find the source of it in the Old Testament. So if Jesus is the one who has the key of David, we need to think, well, what do keys do? They unlock things. So you can shut something with a key or you can open it. So keys are about opening and shutting. Fair enough? That makes sense. What about David? It's the key of David. Who's David? Well, he's the greatest king Israel ever had. Right? Now, David was a wonderful king. Um, He wasn't a perfect king, but he was as good as they got. And after him, no other king ever really compared. But God made David a promise. So if you were to go back and read in 2 Samuel 7 you'd realise that God promised David that he would have an eternal kingdom. Now, how can you have an eternal kingdom? Because David died. Oh, it's going to be one of David's descendants. So from that point on, faithful followers of Yahweh were looking for a descendant of David who would reign forever. Now, what would be the benefit to the Jewish people of having a descendant of David who would reign forever. Well, Jews believed, rightly so, that they were God's chosen. They were chosen to be God's people, to be his messengers to the world. They liked the fact that they were God's people. They weren't so crazy about it being his messengers to the world. But that's what they were supposed to be. But they suffered again and again and again because they kept disobeying God and so the Babylonians and the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans ruled over them. So all the way through, faithful Jews are waiting for the day that God raises up a descendant in the line of David who's going to reverse everything. And he's going to bring the Jews back to the top of the heap where they belong, they think. So here Jesus says, I'm the one with the key of David. I'm the one who has power over life and death to open the door or to close it. And I have the key of David. Now, back in Isaiah 22, we read about a man called Shebna, who was the steward of the king's house. And all he did was build a precious tomb for himself because he wanted to make himself look special. 
And so God says, right, well, I'm going to get rid of you and I'm going to raise up Eliakim and he'll be a faithful steward and I'll give him the key of the house of David because it meant in that context that he would do properly what a steward should do. He would have the authority of the king to do the king's business. So Jesus uses that image. He's the one who comes from the family line of David. He's the true king of Israel. He is the one who is vested with the authority of God to open and close the door to life and to death. How are we going so far? Is that all right? Got that? So this is a big deal, right? Biggest question you'll ever need to find an answer to is, is Jesus Lord? Part of the acknowledgement that Jesus is Lord, yes, Jesus, you have the right to say who belongs in God's kingdom and who does not. Open the door and close it. So, we move on to the praise. There's always a word of praise in these seven letters. And so, uh, at verse 8, Jesus says to the Philadelphian Christians, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which is no, no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power and you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So he knows their situation and he identifies with it. Uh, now, the door that Jesus is opening here, what do doors do? They admit entrance or they prevent it, right? If you're going away on holiday, I recommend you lock your door because you don't want people to get in who you don't want to be there. So doors allow entrance, but they also deny access. The door that Jesus is talking about here is the door of entry into the kingdom. But I think there's more to it as well. Because quite often in the New Testament, the image of a door is used as a symbol of opportunity. And so the Apostle Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 16. And he says, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work is open to me. So he says, there's lots of good work I can do here. A wide door is opened. Now, have you ever heard people talk about doors opening and closing? We use that language, don't we? I hear Christians use it, you know. I think that door's been closed to me. How would we know that a door's been closed to us? How would we know that a door of opportunity has been closed to us? Very often when I hear Christians using those words, they'll interpret difficulty, inconvenience or danger. They'll say that door's been closed. Listen to what Paul says. A wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. So Paul didn't count danger, difficulty, inconvenience as the closing of a door. He knew the door was open. The door to take the, mess, the life-changing message of Jesus is always going to be opposed. So don't think that inconvenience is the closing of the door. Jesus is saying to the Philadelphian church, the door is open and it's never going to close for you. The door is the door to salvation and he wants them to take that message to their fellow Philadelphians, even though it's difficult and even though they have very little power. So Jesus knows that they've got little power. He knows that they're small in number. They're probably very small in influence in this Hellenistic city, which is spreading Greek culture. But he says, I also know this, that you've kept my word. What does it mean to keep Jesus' word? Well, if you keep anything, it means you look after it. 
We got any hoarders here? People who just like to hang on to stuff, right? Um, if you've got stuff that you like and want to keep, you look after it. I've got a few musical instruments. They're my, apart from my family, my proudest possessions. I look after them because I want them to last. And I actually want them to outlast me. I intend to hand them on. When you keep something, you look after it. To keep Jesus' words means you treasure them, you look after them, and you live by them. Now this week we've heard our Premier say that he's a Catholic and uh, being a Catholic matters to him. And uh, he says he's guided by his faith every day. That's fascinating. It'd be really interesting to sit down and ask him what he means by that. Does that mean he's keeping the words of Jesus? It sounds like he picks and chooses which of the words, of, which of the beliefs of the Catholic Church he actually subscribes to. To keep Jesus' words is to agree with that proposition from the book of Deuteronomy. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. To keep Jesus' words means you're not going to add to them, you're not going to take away. You're going to accept them and you're going to let them lead you. Does that make sense? Do we get to pick and choose which words of Jesus we like? No, because he's Lord. He's King. He gets to set the rules and his rules are good rules. When it says that uh, these people in Philadelphia have not denied his name, that's powerful too. How could we deny Jesus' name? Very easily, I should think. When the conversation goes around, you're not one of those churchgoers, are you? Oh, no, not me. Because you don't want to be outside the court of public opinion in your workplace or your friendship circle. How could we deny Jesus' name? It means saying, I don't really know him. I don't really care about him. But you see, Jesus says, if you deny him before men, he'll deny you before the Father. Now that's serious, isn't it? Imagine fronting up on Judgment Day. Here I am, Jesus, I've called you Lord all these years. And he says, I never knew you because you denied me. To live in the way that Jesus is talking about here is to treasure his word, to live by them, and never to be ashamed of acknowledging that he's Lord, that he's your master, that you're living according to his life. So Jesus knows their struggles and the particular struggle is in verse 9 which is a verse we need to treat really, really carefully. Have a look at verse 9. So Jesus says, I know what you're going through. And then he says, Behold, I'll make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they're Jews and they're not, but lie. Behold, I'll make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Now we've heard about the synagogue of Satan before because that's how the Jewish community in Smyrna was uh, described back in chapter 2 verse 9 and probably what this means is the church in Philadelphia is being actively persecuted by Jews in the town just as the Smyrnaean believers were, right? Now before we go any further we need to say this and, and, and say it clearly so that no one misunderstands what I'm saying. There have, over the 2,000 years of Christian history, 
been examples of people who have taken a verse like that and others with it and have used it as an excuse for persecuting Jews. Can I please plead with you, this has nothing to do with Christians doing anything of evil intent against a Jew. Have you got that? Right. Uh, God chose the Jews to be his people. He still has plans for them. The fact that so many of them have rejected him does not mean that we take the law into our hands. There have been people who said, they're the ones that killed Jesus, we need to get rid of them. Uh Uh-uh, not at all. No, sir, that is not Christian faith. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world or my followers would fight. Christians are not to take up arms for the cause of the gospel against any people group, um, Jew or any other. So this is not a pretext for, for opposition uh, of a violent nature towards Jews or anti-Semitism, it's often called. We got that? Right, we can move on because it is a strong, it's a strong statement. Jesus says these people who are causing you grief in Philadelphia are not Jews. Now, how could he say that? Because they identified as Jews. Well, this is something that it would take longer than we've got now to fully explore. But a biblical principle is that God sees our hearts, doesn't he? So God knows those who belong to him. And how does he know? Because they live out what they say they believe. So you can, fool, you can fool me and look like a Christian, but you'll never fool God. People could fool each other that they're Jews, but they won't fool God. What God has always wanted is a devoted heart. So in Deuteronomy, on two occasions, in that book of the law, twice, God's people are told by Moses, not the circumcision of the flesh, but the circumcision of the heart. That's what God requires. He wants changed lives. And so on the basis of this, Jesus says this synagogue is not actually full of true Jews. It's full of false Jews. How would Jesus know? A true Jew would have acknowledged him as Lord. Because who is Jesus? He's Messiah. He's the one in the line of David that they've been waiting for. And when he came, they said, No, we don't think you're the one. So they've denied their king. And on the basis of that, Jesus can say of these people who continue to practice Judaism, you've missed the one you thought you were waiting for. You have failed to acknowledge the rule of the only one who can be called Lord. And on the basis of that, Jesus says, they're not Jews, they lie. Now that word lie is the word we get for pseudo. You know, do you know the word pseudo? You can have pseudo-leather seats in your car. Now, everybody else thinks they're leather, but you know they're pseudo-leather, right? right? Pseudo means false. It means to lie. And this is in contrast to Jesus. And who's Jesus? He's the Holy One and the True One. And he's the one with eyes of fire who knows the true from the false. And so... The open door that's up before the Philadelphians is to bear faithful witness to these unbelieving pseudo-Jews, trusting that some of them will come to faith. Because Jesus says to them, they'll they'll come and bow down before your feet and they'll learn that I've loved you. Now, to say that they'll come and bow down is to take prophecies from the book of Isaiah, that there would come a day 
when God's people would go from being despised to being honoured. That little word there, come and bow down, it's literally, it means to worship. It's the same word that is used elsewhere in the New Testament for worship. And so what was once said of God's old covenant people is now applied by the living, reigning Lord Jesus to his new covenant Gentile people and he says the situation is going to be reversed. These people in the synagogue of Satan are giving you grief but one day they'll bow at your feet because you have become the true people of God by faith in Jesus, God's Messiah. And so we get to verse 10 and Jesus warns that there's a test coming. He says, because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, that little phrase there, those who dwell on the earth, is always used in Revelation for unbelievers. Right? Do we dwell on the earth? Feels like it. But this is the way that Revelation speaks. Those who dwell on the earth is in contrast to those whose true home... Where's our true home? Heaven. We're citizens of heaven. So in the language of Revelation, people who dwell on the earth are people whose hearts are set on worldly things. In contrast to the people who have called Jesus Lord, who know that where he is, is their true home. And so he says, I know about your patient endurance and he says because you've kept on patiently enduring the suffering that you're going through even though you feel powerless I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial now what's the hour of trial well I think it's the entire period between then and when Jesus returns in which every generation of Christians will find their faith tested has your faith ever been tested has it If it hasn't, you've had a lazy life. Well done. But every one of us is going to go through things that will say, is it true? Does it work? Can God really be trusted? If you've never thought that, then come and talk to me afterwards. I need your help. Life tests us, doesn't it? But the same experiences that test our faith will prove our faith and will refine our faith and will purify our faith and will deepen it. Because when does Jesus seem closest? When life's roughest. Isn't that true? Isn't it true? Jesus will seem closest when life is roughest. And so the trials that test and purify and refine and deepen your faith and trust in Jesus. For the dwellers on the earth, those same trials will cause resentment and bitterness and hostility. Trials will have two effects. They'll either make you better or bitter. And that's what he's talking about. And Jesus says... I'm going to keep you. You've kept my word. I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial. In other words, Jesus is promising he will deliver you spiritually. What's the worst thing that can happen? The worst thing that can happen is you die. 
No, actually, it's not that bad. Because for a believer who dies, they go to be with Jesus. The worst thing that can happen is if you die without Jesus. We're going to talk about that later on. But Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. Just take heart, I've overcome the world. In John 17, he prays for the disciples tonight before he goes to the cross. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. That's the promise here. Jesus says to the Philadelphians and to the Mafrians, when life is trying and testing, I'll be with you and I'll keep you if you keep my word. So he keeps us and we keep his word. So then he says, I'm coming soon in verse 11. And he says, persevere, hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Hold on tight, hold fast. Um, That's what we've got to do now. You may feel not very powerful. So what's the message for you today? Keep Jesus' word. Keep declaring every day, Jesus, you are Lord. And then live like it. Because Jesus wants us to be hearers of the word and doers of the word. Keep declaring Jesus' lordship in the practical submission of every aspect of your life to doing what he wills and commands. But in verse 11 he says, I'm coming soon, hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Hold fast means to hang on tight. Don't let go. I heard a story some years ago at an Anzac Day ceremony at school. But I may have told it here before. It's a, I've told this a few times, but I think, I think it helps. Uh, I was told the story as though it was true. It was a representative of the Druin RSL who'd been in the uh, Bomber Command in the Second World War. And he told a story about a friend of his who was flying a bomber mission over Germany in the Second World War. And his plane was hit and he was thrown into the black of night over occupied Europe. And he wasn't wearing a parachute. How much worse could it be? That sounds pretty bad. And he bumped into something. That was a man who did have his parachute, so he grabbed onto him. And he rode all the way to Earth and survived. Now, I didn't make it up. I'm telling you what Jack Butler from Drew and RSL told us at this, right? That's what he said. The man landed on his backside and he walked with a limp for the rest of his life, but he survived. Now, what's the point of that? What do you think he did once he found a man who did have a parachute? He hung on. Right? And at no point during the journey from hitting that man with a parachute to the ground did he think, it's safe now to let go. (laughs) His security rested on him holding on tight. And that's what Jesus says to us. That's what Jesus says here. He says, uh, hold fast what you have. Have you started with Jesus? Have you called him Lord? Have you turned from your sins and confessed that his blood alone has paid the price for the release of you from captivity to sin and and from the terrible thought that one day God will will demand an accounting for life. Jesus paid with his blood for your sins and mine, right? If you've come to that point of confessing that, don't quit. Keep looking into his word. Keep doing his word. Keep holding his word. And Jesus will hold you. And so he has these range of promises that, that amount to eternal security. The one who conquers, verse 12... I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of my city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. 
See how often the name comes up there? When Jesus looks at you, he says, mine. And Jesus promises he won't lose one of those the Father has given him. Does that make you feel secure? Jesus, the Lord of the universe, the one with the keys of death and Hades, the King of God's kingdom, who opens and no one can shut, says when he looks at you, mine. Because he's put his name on you. But look, what the, look, look at the promise here. He says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Wow, what a future we've got. Marble. <laughs> the book of Revelation uses imagery, doesn't it? We've got to get our heads around that. What does it mean to be a pillar in the temple of God? Well, think about this. In Philadelphia, a city that always wondered when the next earthquake was coming, they'd seen temples knocked over. To be a pillar in the temple of anything forever was a symbol of security. But what is a temple? It's a place where God lives. And the end of Revelation tells us that the whole earth is going to be the temple. We won't need a temple because God will be there. This is a way of saying, Philadelphians, you feel weak, you feel powerless, you feel insignificant, but I know you and I know your patient endurance and I know your faith and I'll reward you with eternal life that will be unthreatenable and unchallengeable. How about that? So, to a powerless church, an evidently powerless church, we've got these extraordinary promises because what Jesus has paid for, he will never lose. And we can say, we have all the power we need, don't we? Because the power's not in us, it's in Jesus. And so what do we do? We hold to his word. We don't deny his name. We have all the power we need. Now notice here, working our way through the performer, there is no criticism of the church in Philadelphia. The powerless church, Jesus has nothing against it. He just says, keep doing what you've begun to do. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, please help us to be like the church in Philadelphia. Please help us not to underestimate the power that is at work amongst us, the power of your Holy Spirit, the power that raised Jesus from the dead. Please help us to believe that uh, as we hold on to the word, as we hold it fast, as we maintain our allegiance to Jesus our Lord, never denying his name but always living for him, please help us to remember that we have all the power we need to be the people that you've called us to be. And so I ask that you would make us a fruitful church, a faithful church, a church where uh, the openness of the kingdom is declared so that others may enter with us. Uh, Father, we pray all these things uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus, the one who loved us and poured out his life's blood for us, the one who has promised that he will never lose even one of those that you've given him. Please help us to rest in these great promises, to take courage from them and to go out into what uh, this week holds, full of the power and the confidence that comes from believing these things because Jesus is Lord. Amen.